hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Holger. We are here to talk about two video games this week. Just two. You and I have both played both games, which is, I think, a rare feat for us. Yeah, it's ideal. I think we don't force it, but I think when we've both, you know, because sometimes I think it's it's fun to sell the other on on a game we haven't yes. played yet, but ideally we can both speak to it. And it's also been it's been a while since we've had a very clean duo on the show. Usually That's it's true. like there's two bigger conversations than like a weird amuse bouche, as you would say. I will say I, I can't think of a single link between the two games we're talking about today. I think usually we try and form some kind of like connective tissue between the things that we talk about. It's going to be a challenge, I think, to find the I connective tissue here. I think Death Traps is the only, <laughs> the only thing that would connect the two. That's a great point, actually. Okay, yeah. well, hey, ask and answer, I guess. <laughs> the first the first game we want to talk about, I, I think I think is notable because it's, you know, it's almost the end of January of 2024 when we're recording this episode. And usually this time of year is reserved for what we just call like anything goes season or something along those lines. Like it's just there's nothing coming out that like really stands out. And what that means is that you and I just kind of play the quote unquote January game that we just like really fall head over heels into. And that could be like anything. Yeah. And, I think, and over the years has been anything. I don't have any data to back me up on this, but I feel like ever since 2020 the perception of q1 for game publishers has shifted because i think like you said like this used to be the period where games would come out that maybe companies didn't like fully believe in or you know like maybe they would be like okay this is a slow period so this game that we're maybe like half sure about We'll get more eyes on it. Like right. I think famously, uh, Near Automata was released around this time in 2017 mm-hmm. for kind of similar reasons. Like this is that was Yoko Taro before his like mainstream success. So it's yeah. like let's put this weird ass robot game in January <laughs> and then <laughs> becomes a cult hit. But now it feels like when you have Horizon Forbidden West and Elden Ring coming out in February, yeah, it really is just January of the Q1 period that is like the no man's land of releases. Yeah, and I, I think at least over the course of the years many years of of like just being not even doing shows like this but just being like a person who played video games and was excited about video games and following their launches it was like the october november season was historically when all of the really big heavy hitters would come out like you would just spend your entire year being like okay there's a couple things coming out here and there but the summer there was absolutely nothing and then around october november is when everything would come out to gear up for the holiday season and over the course of time it seems like more and more developers have started to be like why are we all releasing our games in these same two-month windows just so we can you know hypothetically be the game that somebody buys during the holiday season when like there are people buying games all year round and i think historically we've just seen people starting to release games earlier and earlier and earlier in the year and what that has weirdly inadvertently done is in some cases i can't remember if this i mean this definitely wasn't the case last year because last year was ridiculous but i just think over the course of the past couple years like that pre-holiday season has weirdly become slower than it ever has been yeah and now as you're saying like all of these games are coming out earlier in the year when again historically there was nothing coming out so now everybody's vying for like the strangest months of the year instead of the <laughs> ones that make sense yeah march is the spotlight now somehow yes and i, I I'm, I'm curious if we're just going to have this like weird hot zone of when all the video game releases come out it's just going to shift backwards in time until it gets re- wraps around beyond january and back into the holiday season again <laughs> like i just i just think it's like this weird heat map of the year if you can visualize the time 
timeline where it's, you're just going to watch when all the games come out, just move along that timeline in a backwards fashion. But all that to say, uh, Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown came out <laughs> <laughs> in mid-January of 2024. You and I have both played it. This is a game. It's I, I forget when this got announced. It got announced like semi-recently, though. It might have been yeah. like Summer Games Fest uh, uh, last year or something. But I just remember like I just feel like the timeline between when I first heard about this game and when I'm playing it is very short. And maybe that's getting older. But also, I think it really has been short. And when I first saw it, I remember seeing the trailer for it. I remember seeing a little bit of the gameplay and very quickly you're like, okay, this is not, this is obviously not in the same style as like the Sands of Time, which was the game that came out for like GameCube and Xbox and PS2 or its sequels, which were like notably darker and weirder. It is not anything like the 2008 Prince of Persia reboot. It's nothing. I mean, it's, I think the thing it's weirdly closest to is the original Prince of Persia, which is like famously a kind of graphics powerhouse in the era that it came out, but only because the, the designer and developer like rotoscoped all the animation so they just looked more fluid than anything you'd ever seen but the game was for all intents and purposes just like a level-based platforming game this looks a little bit like that but it has adopted the what is frequently known as metroidvania genre but somebody in discord just reminded me this morning that we did come up with gate punk we did during yeah. our metroidvania episode which i kind of want to stick with i will also shout out our friends over at the besties who posited and i didn't know this but apparently in japan they called them search action games which that's great too yeah. i don't i don't hate but i think yeah. gatepunk is better <laughs> it's also ours so let's that's own true it. yeah i i have seen people in the discord like use the term gatepunk without fully knowing it was like a bit that we did <laughs> so i think we're on to something when it's unironically used in passing okay well gate gatepunk it is then i think the term metroidvania has become a little bit eye-rolly you know, I think yeah. it's like people still want them. And as evidenced by Lost Crime, which we'll talk about more in detail in a bit, like there's still a lot to do with the genre. There's a lot yes. you can refine and improve upon, even though it's named after two games. Metroidvania as a genre has been around long enough that I think it's an open enough playing field that you can do a lot of different things within it and still, you know, accurately call it a Metroidvania. Yes. At, but at the same time. Sometimes it feels like, I mean, one, it's harder to stand out because every year there's probably at least 10, if not more Metroidvanias coming out on Steam. Yeah, that that are like notable. I'm sure there's like hundreds that are coming out on Steam, sure there's but there's like 10 that, that like yeah. get any kind of marketing press and become games that people talk about. Yeah, And it's at a point where like, I mean, you go you go back and play Cave Story, which is, you know, I think one of the pioneers of the of the indie Metroidvania. That game is wonderful still in a lot of ways, but like in many ways it's been eclipsed in terms of just mm. you know feeling of movement and gameplay and game design and yeah. i don't want to i don't want to uh debase that game because i think it's wildly important and also was made by one person yeah before any of these game engines were more immediately available so right. like it's a miracle that game is as good as it is and i think it's still great but i think the level of expectation is much higher is mm -hmm. what i mean i think like you basically have to be the best in the world at one thing <laughs> in your metroidvania to to be noticed like yes ori for example i think has the best feeling of movement in a metroidvania right um um, Hollow Knight, I think, just has such a unique sense of atmosphere. And it's, I think, maybe one of the handful of games that has taken the sort of indirect storytelling of Souls and pushed it even further in, yeah. in a more interesting direction. 
So like you really have to put yourself into it is what I mean. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think there's still a lot to do, but I think when something is pitched as a souls like or a Metroidvania, it's an uphill battle sometimes yeah. in terms of like, well, what's this one doing differently? Yeah. And I, I think one of the big takeaways for me from from our Metroidvania episode, which uh, if you haven't listened to it, it, it's a bonus episode where we talked about Super Metroid and Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Even uh, Look, I, I have said on that episode and in other episodes, especially some of the console retrospectives where Castlevania games exist, I'm not a huge fan of Castlevania. I like them. But I don't love them. But even removed from that, like, very very subjective feeling about Castlevania. I think doing that episode for me really highlighted how weird the term Metroidvania is because so much of what we consider to be that genre, like when you say that, when you say that name out loud, all the things it evokes are things that Metroid really pioneered. And Castlevania was like one of the first big franchises to be like, oh, we can also do that. But I don't, I don't feel, I don't personally, I don't feel like Castlevania really like added a lot to that genre as much as it did as you were just saying like take it and run with it and imbue its own energy into it and prove that it can be a genre and not just like what metroid is and i think that's where castlevania is important less so than like it is just as formative to the genre as metroid you know the origin of the word is a bit fuzzy like there isn't a concrete like date where metroidvania began to be said out loud but the irony is that i think it originated as a term to describe the direction the castlevania games were going so it was less that this genre is these two games fused together and more oh castlevania games are now like metroid (laughs) so it actually kind of further cements your point of like it really is all metroid and i think castlevania i kind of see as like the ramones of the genre where it's like (laughs) they just inspire people with this feeling of you can do this too right like you can break the rules you can have fun with it and like it doesn't have to be super elaborate. It can be three chords and attitude. Yeah. Um, and I think that has gone a long way just like in terms of inspiration. Because I, I do think ironically in the Metroidvania genre on, you know, if you go on Steam or Itch and like look up games yes. that are that are labeled that way. I know where you're going with this and I super agree. They're all pulling from Castlevania yes. way more notably than Metroid in some ways. It's like you have like Axiom Verge and... Axiom Verge 2. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That like wannabe Metroid. Uh, and and the, weird, the weird irony here also, just while we're bringing up Souls-likes, is like, you know, Dark, Dark Souls is also a Metroidvania in a way, yeah. but has, you know, pushed that so far that it has now become its own thing, which similarly, now other developers are being the Castlevania of Souls-likes and being like, you could do this too. You have things like Liza P, obviously, which I think is fascinating to just watch like one genre just morph into another one just because it's so fucking good and then morph into another one. It's fascinating. But anyway, Gatepunk is better than Metroidvania, I think <laughs> is the point here. I will also say I, there's a piece on on our website, Into the Cast on Online, that I wrote about JRPG as a genre, which we talked about in the past, uh, especially just surrounding the launch of final fantasy 16 when uh the director just was like i don't like the the genre titled jrpg just doesn't feel good and uh i i am writing a, a much longer version of that piece for something that may or may not ever see the light of day so sorry if it doesn't but i've just been thinking about that genre title a lot and specifically the idea of genre so i've been like kind of uh, ruminating on it a whole bunch while playing Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown as well in terms of Metroidvania and trying to like evolve that genre. But I think it's, it's just worth mentioning and like taking a step back and saying like all words we use are imbued with meaning the more we use them, right? Like 
they they become more powerful as they're said out loud more and more and more. But that doesn't mean they can't change and evolve. And they obviously all do. Spellings of things evolve. New words are invented out of thin air. The definitions of those words change on a almost daily basis, depending on like where you live and who you are and what age you are, et cetera, et cetera. And the same is true and maybe should be even more true of genre. And this is the thing you have brought up a lot and I, I super agree with, which is like these these things aren't these things aren't rigid boxes, you know, and, and nor should they be, because as soon as they become a rigid box, then you're like, well, fuck you. This isn't a Metroidvania anymore. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. You should you shouldn't be telling somebody, fuck you. This isn't a Metroidvania. If they say it's a Metroidvania, what they're doing is expanding the idea of what a Metroidvania can be. And that's that should be exciting to everybody. Yeah. Like that should be that should be that should be like applauded, I think. Totally. And I also think usually the better games are harder to like yes. single out in terms of genre. If somebody's like, here's my Souls like and you play it and it's nothing like any Souls like yeah. you've ever played before. And you're like, how do they think this is a Souls like? That's exhilarating. I think this was an accident, but I have seen Titanfall 2 show up in Dating Sim more than once on Steam. <laughs> and I'm starting to like rethink the genre of that game as well. Um, <laughs> I love that. I think um, one, one of the big ones for me and one of the things that I always refer back to is that Elden Ring is frequently considered a JRPG by a lot of people on the Internet. And I'm like, the only thing that that has to do with what I consider to be a JRPG as a genre, when I consider that genre is that it is made by people who live in Japan. And like, that can't be it. Like, that can't be the genre, you know? Yeah. I try now just to say RPG. Yeah, same. I'm searching for maybe another word to describe like what what would classify like a Final Fantasy or a Dragon Quest? You know, and I guess it would be RPG, but I think that's distinct from, say, like Oblivion or Skyrim. I think right? it depends. I think it depends on what kind of RPG or what what which of the Final Fantasy games you're talking about. Right. That's like, true. That's ev- a whole other conversation. Every Dragon <laughs> Quest I would consider to be a turn based RPG. Final yeah, Fantasies yeah. have been turn based RPGs and are now action RPGs. But the thing is, like Chained Echoes or uh, what's the other one that just that came out last year? Sea of Stars would probably not be considered JRPGs by a lot of people who like hang out in reset era forums right because they're technically not made by people in japan despite having all of the trappings of things that we consider to be jrpgs it's kind of like whether or not avatar is an anime you know it's it's a western animated right. show but it's clearly pulling from a lot of asian culture and anime style yes one of the more troubling uses of jrpg that's kind of come to light more recently is like we don't say WRPG, you know, it's almost like there's this assumption that RPG is wet. Like you don't need to qualify if it's Western, but you yes. do if it's not. And that's yes. kind of the othering of the genre. Not yeah, Not to paraphrase the piece that I have not released yet too much, <laughs> but <laughs> it, re- a, it really like somehow <laughs> it really goes into what we mean when we say Western RPG also, because I think that the the birth of that term is so fucking weird. Yeah. And like, I just, I just don't get it. It's like the only reason I want somebody to say Western RPG to me is if they want me to talk about oblivion for a really long time. Like that's, or, the- <laughs> uh, or red dead Two. red dead Two is actually a Western RPG. <laughs> that's really good. Zing. Damn. Hey, try the veal. Oh my God. Um, how, how do we even go move on? From that? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, still got it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, like, uh, you know, people considered Kingdom Hearts to be a JRPG, and I'm like that. I think it's a different. Like when I think of JRPG, and uh, it's it's worth mentioning. Like season two of this show, I opened with saying I want to find a JRPG I like, and what I really meant, and like 
relitigating my own thought process there and like holding my own feet to the fire of the younger version of me, which isn't even that long ago, but uh, you know, the younger version of myself, when I said JRPG in that moment, what I really meant was like more tactical strategy based RPGs, like turn-based yeah. turn-based or strategy, which then led to Fire Emblem Three Houses and then Dragon Quest Eleven, And that's really what I meant by that. And, and I think looking back at my old self really opened my eyes to like what that genre title like actually means i think in in like the larger scope of things and i think for a lot of people out there and maybe you who are listening right now you're probably like i'm still going to use it and i i have like a pretty clearly defined version of that in my head and i think that that's fine but i do think it's worth mentioning that like that genre name is evolving in the same way i think a lot of people are starting to ask questions about metroidvania as a genre name as well and we're starting to see for example like in japan they are saying search action games or you and i are trying to come up with gate punk like i do i I do think that as soon as there are enough people asking those questions, that's when the impetus for change begins. And that's when that shift starts. You know? Yeah, it's kind of like um, I learned recently that visual novels in Japan are often called adventure games, which like we would have a very different definition yeah. for, which I think is like that to me actually then opens up the potential of the genre. Even just hearing that name is like mm -hmm. adventure is way more ambiguous than visual novel yeah. right yeah i i think again using genre as a reference point and not something you're confining to one definition is yeah. my i think our philosophy or to quote captain barbosa from walt disney pictures pirates of the caribbean the curse of the black pearl it's more like a guideline than an actual rule wow you really pulled it off i was like <laughs> i have only seen the first one years ago so you could have said anything and i would have believed you like it's like jack sparrow said of all the gin joints in the world um <laughs> anyway what's up prince of persia i would love to do that yeah um should, maybe we should take a break actually i feel like we just had a whole section about genres <laughs> let's take a beat all right, we're back. Hello. We're talking about Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown. The reason I, I, I said I alluded to at the, at the very top when I first said it and you and you you asked me what the subtitle was is I have gotten the subtitle of this game wrong every time I've written it down, every single place I've written it down ever since I first wrote it down anywhere, including the Airtable, which you get access to if you pay $5 on our Patreon. Uh, but I, I wrote it in there initially as Prince of Persia, The Two Crowns. And I don't know where that came from. Interesting. But having having that so wrong and so seared in my head has completely changed what I thought the plot of this game was for the <laughs> longest time. So just to give you a quick heads up. So as we mentioned, this is a gate punk video game. Um, it is it is taking what we have seen in the earliest Prince of Persia game, the very first one, also a little bit of what we've seen in the Sands of Time and its sequels um, and kind of blending those two into a gate punk video game where you're like running around a huge map unlocking a bunch of abilities that allow you to run around that huge map in new and interesting and exciting ways and unlock gates. Uh, and also there's like a pretty heavy focus on combat. It feels a lot like a game that I would say is as much inspired by Hollow Knight as it is by Metroid and Castlevania. But that having been said, the plot of the game is you're playing as a guy named Sargon, who is one of the immortals of Persia, which is like a group of like super hardcore fighters. Um, and they exist to just like keep the area of Persia safe from, you know, like the onslaught of enemies that are always trying to take over Persia. And uh, at, at a point right at the beginning of the game, the, the, the prince of Persia, Hassan, is kidnapped. And you and the immortals need to go to Mount Kaf, which is a legendary place in Persian folklore. And you need to uh, retrieve him from there. And things in Mount Kaf are super weird. And we can get into 
how they're weird later. But my assumption the whole time was, wow, this game is called Prince of Persia, The Two Crowns. I wonder if Sargon is also a Prince of Persia. Like, I've just been waiting for the for the Sargon backstory the whole time. because I'm like, where did this guy come from? Why are we playing as him? It's weird that you're playing a Prince of Persia game, not as the Prince of Persia. But the game is actually <laughs> called The Lost Crown. And The Lost Crown is the, the Prince of Persia who has been literally kidnapped and lost. <laughs> it's like so obvious if you actually know what the subtitle of the game is. But I, I've been waiting for a twist. I could see there being some type of link to Sargon at some point. Yeah, but... that's probably true. I've seen a little bit of Sargon's backstory at, at, at the point in the game that I'm at right now. And the backstory is literally like he just showed up on the steps of where the immortals hang out and was like, I want to fight your strongest warrior. So like, where did he come from? I still don't really know. So it's possible. He could yeah. also be a prince of Persia. That's right. That maybe the, the crown is lost because he doesn't know he's the prince. Oh, shit. Sorry if we uh, inadvertently by <laughs> guessing just spoiled the game for you via me initially misunderstanding the name of the video game. <laughs> it's fairly light on story so far, at least. Like, it, it is an interesting setup. It's not the strong suit, definitely. Yeah, it's kind of, it feels like a placeholder. Yeah, yeah. The characters are fun, but I think, like, you know, it, it's it's a story delivered in a similar way as any Castlevania, where it's like, here's why you're here, basically. Run around, yeah. <laughs> Don't die, yeah. <laughs> what is a prince? Yeah. <laughs> In this case, he is kind of a miserable pile of secrets, actually. <laughs> yeah. If he's secretly if he's secretly a prince and doesn't know it, I would be miserable if I didn't know I was a prince. So you're much farther ahead than I am. You also played the demo, which I think this game's demo yes. is maybe like what every publisher dreams a demo will accomplish. Yes. Like I feel like when this demo came out, suddenly everyone on earth was talking about this game. Yeah. I'll be honest, I think there's a way to very there's a cynical read of this game's existence of like, here's Ubisoft rebooting this franchise for the what the fourth time, right? Mixing together this like stew of every popular genre right now. Yes. Like I think on paper, it's very, again, it goes back to like us being sick of hearing the term Metroidvania. But when you play it, first of all, it's made by uh, the development team within Ubisoft that worked on this game. Also made a lot of the Rayman games. Yeah, Ubisoft Montreal, so, I, I believe, right? Uh, sorry, Ubisoft Montpellier. Yes. But yes, they, they're, the, they're the team that made the uh, Rayman Legends games, which uh, were great. Rayman weirdly gets overlooked in terms of like, what are the... I think because they kind of lean into the party game aspect of it. I don't know if they get the same respect as like, you know, Mario or Celeste as platformers, but they're really good. And I think you can tell that this team understands movement and like how to make like platforming and movement feel great because everything you do in this game is fun. Like... Yes. Jumping on walls, like even dying weirdly is fun. Like yes. everything about the game just feels perfect. And I think that is weirdly one of the, I don't want to say lowest hanging fruit because it's very hard to make a game feel this good. But if there's any like common weakness within the genre, it's usually that moving around is kind of a slog, like yeah. especially in Castlevania. Right. Um, I think those games tend to feel a little stiff compared to a lot of the more modern indie games pulling inspiration from them. Like, yeah. And the Castlevanias I've liked the most are the ones that become less stiff over time. But there are some that just don't. There are some that yeah. just stay <laughs> stiff. Even when you get like the dash, it doesn't really help. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's actually that's also why I love Portrait of Ruins so much, because that yeah. game also feels 
feels much better and and switching between the two characters gives you a lot more mobility options how did bloodstained feel on that front i know you play bloodstained i never checked those out bloodstained's awesome i think uh i mean the thing about bloodstained is like it very much is what was promised Mm. Koji Igarashi, who is like usually the head producer on a lot of the of the Metroidvania Castlevania games. Yeah. Uh, he led Bloodstained and I believe it was a Kickstarter game at first. Yes. And that Kickstarter began in a time when there wasn't there weren't a lot of games like that. So I think the appetite for a new Symphony of the Night S game was huge. Right. And that's very much what it is. I think in some ways it doesn't seem to be incorporating a lot of the more like modern additions to the genre. Overall, it does feel like a sequel to that style. Oh my God, Steven, here's our link. It's Koji Igarashi. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, you're right. Who wrote Tokimeki Memorial. (laughs) All right. We always find it eventually. Um, <laughs> I, I think Bloodstained is awesome. I actually just got there. There's a uh, I think it came out leading up to Ritual of the Night coming out. But there's a Bloodstained game that is actually in like the NES style. Yes. That was like a little mini. That was like a mini version of Bloodstained they made to kind of like tide people over until the the main Kickstarter thing that people had backed came out, right? Yeah. I, I, I think you would like Bloodstained because it feels very much like if Aria of Sorrow dialed up the camp to like mm. 20. Yeah. But I think like that aside, Prince of Persia Lost Crown, uh, second to maybe Ori is immediately one of the best feeling Metroidvanias. Just like running around yes. the combat. There's there's definitely a lot of attention. Like there, there's a whole optional like trial mode where you can just learn different combos. It feels a lot like uh yeah. in Bayonetta, where you can just like practice moves and and sort of like figure out your style, but it really, really is impressive. I think if there's any common link, at least from like the GameCube era of Prince of Persia to now, it is movement and you mm-hmm. know, like rewinding time uh combat. Like I think that is sort of the soul of the series from from what little I've played of it. I've been waiting for the moment when they let you rewind time in this game and I'm so excited yeah, for like, it. Yeah, like it's got to happen, right? It's got to happen. I've um, seen I've seen people literally say in dialogue the sands of time, but not not in a way where it's like sands and time are capitalized, but like they're just working it, it the same the same way when we used to do the newsletter, we would find a way to write into the aether somewhere in the newsletter <laughs> yeah. in every issue. Like I can feel them starting to build up the idea of the sands of time, but not like trying to say it directly. It's always in in different contexts, which I think is very smart. It reminds me a lot of how they set up the hook shot in Metroid Prime, where it's like mm. you can maybe see a lot of uses for it, but you don't have it until close to the end. Almost the end of the game. Yeah. Which- yeah. What a, what a decision that was. I love it. Um, yeah. Yes. I, I, I want to circle back to the demo real quick. Um, cause you Please. Just, I, I think that demo came out. I, as I mentioned earlier, like I saw this game, I, I saw when they announced it and I was like, actually kind of weirdly excited about it. It seemed like a, the right fit for Prince of Persia, but I didn't think it was going to be like as good as it is. Like I was like, eh, you know, it seems like an interesting idea, especially considering we know that they're trying to remake the sands of time, which I think, uh, if I, if I'm, remembering what our friend Chris Plant on the most recent episode of the besties said correctly, they just rebooted the development of that game again. So like that's going to be like four or five years from now, probably that that remake comes out. So 
in the meantime, we have this, which kind of puts it at a weird crossroads where it's like, I, I don't know if I want a remake of The Sands of Time. I think I would just want a sequel to this instead. But anyway, besides the point. Um, anyway, this game comes out with a, with a spectacular demo last week, which I played through. And the demo is brilliant in that they take what is the opening section of Mount Kof uh, that leads up to the first like main boss that you fight and just gives you most of the movement options that you'll get throughout the game uh not most but like a big chunk of them so you already start with like an air dash you already start with a bow and arrow and the ability to throw your bow and arrow kind of like uh like a uh it's like a chakram so it's like a a boomerang like a big metal boomerang that returns to you and even just that stuff by itself like the the table stakes of the game is you start like with the ability to wall jump and things like that um but just adding the air dash and the bow and arrow and stuff uh increases your movement options so ridiculously that when I started playing the demo, I was like, man, this is fucking incredible. I feel like a god already. Yeah. But when you start the main game, you do not have the air dash. You do not have the bow and arrow. You do not have the chakram throw. So you're just kind of like sprinting around and you have the ability to jump off walls, which is a huge rug pull in some ways, but also got me excited again to go and find those abilities and like get back to the point that I was at in the demo, Um, which I will say at the point I'm at now, I'm about seven hours into the game. My my completion thing says like 35%, but who knows what that means really? Yeah, it's a fairly, it seems like a, fairly short game like i i looked up how long to be and it's like 15 hours oh really Interesting. which i think is a good length for metroidvania usually like yeah. i mean most metroid games are like between 10 and 15 yes and they're kind of meant to be replayed in many ways another link to our second game oh yeah oh you're right i will say about four hours in is when i had everything that i had in the demo uh so if you're if you're playing and you're like oh my god i feel so sluggish compared to the demo which was the thing that sold me that's kind of where you're gonna get the air dash and all that kind of stuff but there are a bunch of other abilities that you're gonna unlock before then that were not in the demo that are fascinating and fantastic and wonderful which i don't know how many of them i would want to spoil but i think one of the things about this game that has really blown me away uh and i don't know how much you've seen yet but the size of the map is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The The ability to just like zoom out of the map, it feels so much like Hollow Nest in Hollow Knight to me, which I, I think is just a, a feeling I've been chasing for a long time. And all of these areas feel so visually distinct from one another. I'm in an area right now. So th- there's an area that's called like the Depths, which is, you know, very Hollow Knighty. Um, but it's like, you know, it's a sewer and there's like, poison everywhere and there are uh there are like kind of stealthy rat people who show up and throw like poison knives at you and it like sucks (laughs) it's like just a horrible (laughs) place to be but later on in the game i'm in a place i don't know what it is actually called but like i need i need a little like flame sprite with me uh who is lighting the area and there are actual rat people who climb out of the sewers and it's just like covered in mud and gunk and like i thought the sewer area was bad but this sewer area is completely different and bad in a new way and i think even just the ability to visually have visual distinctions between the two horrible sewer areas you don't want to be in is like interesting by itself now imagine if you weren't in a sewer dear listener they have they have that same visual prowess i think everywhere which i think is really spectacular i i just i i've been really blown away by this game i i almost don't even know where to go with it how do you feel yeah, about it? i i love it too i mean i'm earlier than you are uh for some reason when i started playing this game it kept like my ps5 kept the shutting off i've never had that happen before i don't know if that's related to the game or i like, have heard here and there reports of bugs with this game and i've actually yeah. i've run into a couple I, i've had a couple instances where i've like gone and talked to an npc and they're supposed to give me an item and the game just f- 
it doesn't even freeze. It just doesn't give me the item and stays in the fixed camera angle where I'm talking to the NPC. But like Aya Sargon can just like leave the the camera view. Yeah. So then I just have to like restart the game and like make my way back to where that was, which is a bummer. But I've, I've seen other reports of weird stuff with the game. So I think that's not just you. OK, that that's comforting to know, because I was like, is my if my PS5 is dying and I have to get a new one, I'll be very upset about that. Yeah, but uh, it kept shutting off. So I had to play through that. There are two boss fights. That's actually my one big note about the game. Uh, while the demo is apparently wonderful, the game opens with like a very linear path of bad guys and then a mandatory tutorial boss fight. Yeah. And that to me feels like a total miss. Like it does not, other than the feeling of combat, it doesn't really properly showcase the game's strength like in any way. Yeah. And the boss is like, I get what they're going for. They're going for that like uh, asylum demon. Let's have like a really tough boss at the start of the game to prepare you for the journey. But that works for Dark Souls in 2011. I think we've all moved like no one needs to do that again. We've all had that moment. You can't top the asylum demon. Just (laughs) let me play the Metroidvania you've made. Yeah. Even Elden Ring gives you the tree sentinel. But it's like, you're not supposed to fight him. <laughs> yeah, exa- right. Exactly. And I don't really feel yet, at least, what that boss was really preparing me for other than there's a parry, which like I figured that out better from the like undead guy with the spear. Right. Uh, yes. In like two seconds than that entire boss fight. So, I, I felt the same way as somebody who played the demo where I got to that section. I was like, this is not what I enjoyed about the demo. I'd like to get back to Mount Cough, please. I think it's I don't even think I would bring it up if I didn't have to play it five times because right. the game kept crashing. <laughs> so like it's not a deal breaker, but I will say like the there there's that fight and then there's another fight. But at least in the second fight, they like give you a little bit of a traversal tutorial of like swinging on things to get yes. around. Yes. Honestly, they should have just opened with that. Because yeah. I think that second boss fight is enough of a lesson too. Because I think what they're trying to do is like the first boss fight is about parrying and the second is about there are some attacks you can't parry so you have to like slide or avoid them. Mm-hmm. But you know, not trying to backseat design. I just think it was maybe too many bosses before like you actually the get to what is yes. the game. Yeah, yeah, right. But once the game actually starts, once you get to once you get to Mount Cough, it, it's just, it is so clear that people who worked on this game love games like this and have played all of them there are so many quality of life improvements that i didn't know i wanted like i think the big one that the game is like excited to show you is uh when you're in an area like in any metrovania a lot of the early areas will have like clearly signposted rooms but there might be like a locked gate or something in the way that you can't break yet or just a wall of spikes and if you've played any game like this or even if you haven't i think it's clear if you if you played a game before that you'll be like oh i could probably get here later this is you just know? like solitaire yes this is <laughs> just like solitaire <laughs> sorry sorry i didn't mean to undercut your foot if you really played minesweeper before <laughs> I want to put a flag there because I, I know there's a mine here. That's uh, actually, actually a great example. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you accidentally make it work. Uh, so what you can do in this game is there's there's a there's a map which you can like put markers on, which is great. Yes, yes. But you can also just like essentially what they call a memory. You can take like a scr- in-game screenshot of what you're seeing in that area and it will mark it on the map and you can just see the screenshot on the map. It's amazing. So rather than like having to take notes or just remembering like, oh yeah, like there's this glowing wall here that I can't break. You can just 
take a memory of it. That alone, I think, shows a very confident understanding of like what the joys of the genre are, but also what are some ways to to refine the loop of the game or yes. to refine like this ask of you're going to get some powers later and then circle back to this area. I have found that one feature to be so ridiculously helpful. I feel like every once in a while there there's a there's a gate punk video game that like really figures out how to how to make the map just work slightly better than before. I think yeah. I think one of the ones that I'm that I'm seeing percolate a little bit here and there. It's not it's not in Prince of Persia, but I'm seeing percolate here and there is Jedi Fallen Order, the first one. Introduced this idea, at least that I, I hadn't seen before, but introduces this idea of just clearly color coding on the map doors that you can't go through because you don't have the abilities yet. So instead of like in Metroid, they color code all the doors, but they're color coded to the different abilities that you have later on in the game or currently have, et cetera, et cetera. But Jedi Fallen Order is just straight up telling you, you cannot go here yet. Just come back later. And I think that that's very helpful. And I'm starting to see that pop up in games here and there. This is another idea that I'm like, I, I just want to see it. Like the memory feature is brilliant. I, I will like one great example of this is I just kept seeing these little metal platforms on the ground. Yeah. I didn't really know what they were for, but I was like, I was seeing them enough that I started to take screenshots of them. And it took me until honestly, the play session I had right before we sat down to record for me to understand what those metal plates meant. It turns out it's a thing I could have been interacting with and using all along, but just didn't understand I think the game well enough to know how to interact with them almost in like a tunic way. Actually, now I'm thinking about it. Um, but now that I have all of those screenshots saved as memories all along the map, I'm just like going back and visiting each one and unlocking the thing that's supposed to be there, which I think is really fun. And generally in these kinds of games, what they will allow you to do and what Prince of Persia also allows you to do, to be clear, is they'll just give you a bunch of like tokens that you can place on the map wherever you want to mark different things. But I have never found that to be useful. <laughs> I don't know about you. I've never once used that in a, in a game and had it like really work for me because I always forget what the symbols I'm placing really mean. Because you have to assign them yourself. Yeah, I've only been using them for locked doors. Mm. So I, I use the memories specifically for things I don't know what they are yet. Yeah. I'm usually not like a editing map guy. Like I right. always want to be, but I usually find <laughs> it to be like kind of a burden. Yeah. But in this game, they've they've essentially gamified note taking. Yes. In a way that's really elegant. And I think also it's a best of both worlds where if they were like if the game stopped you in your tracks and had a supporting character say like, this looks like you could use something later and then like mandatorily marked your map, I would hate it. It yeah, would be like, what right. is this? You're ruining the magic. But the fact that it's still on you to deduce, like it's still on you to be like, oh, this caught my eye. I'm going to make a note of it. Right. You have that that catharsis that you get from gate punk games where you go back and you've deduced like, Oh, I can now, you know, do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I can turn into a bat now and fly through this mm -hmm. fence. Mm -hmm. If you're Alucard, Alucardian games. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just to give way too much credit to just Symphony of the Night. To just Alucard. <laughs> it's so weird that Alucard isn't in Smash as a playable character. I was playing Smash Ultimate again recently, and it's weird to have Simon and Richter and not Alucard. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Simon makes sense because that's also like the Nintendo yes. Belmont. You know, that's the that's the classic Castlevania protagonist. Richter, R I, I, I would have preferred Simon and Alucard personally. Yeah, same. Even though I like Richter, because I feel like just having Richter and Alucard, you're you're maybe veering away from Nintendo a bit too far. Yeah, but I think there is like something having... about having Richter, Terry, 
Ryu and Ken hanging out, though. They seem like guys who would really get along. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's who you want to hit the arcades with. Right. You know? Yeah. Not yeah. thinking of Tokimeki again. They're hang- yeah, they're hanging out with <laughs> Shenmue Ryo also. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the same genre of guy. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> a really, it's a great episode. Punk, punk, yeah. um, punk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, so I'm still pretty early on in this game, but the the memory feature is great. Also, when you stumble into a boss, uh, they're definitely going for a a soulsy thing here with the bosses there i haven't found any to be brutally difficult but they're challenging but this game also when you die you revive instantly and if you die at a boss fight you can just retry from that room yeah so you don't have to you don't have to like there are um what are they called walk walk trees yeah right uh there are these trees you can find that act as like the save slash rest point on the map um and you can also equip different amulets which i'm obsessed with collecting uh that give you passive buffs and stuff but when you fight again, so you can either respawn there or just respawn right in the room with the boss. So that to me kind of reduces any annoyance where like if I can retry right away, I can get in the zone for like an hour if I have to. Yeah, it's like I'm right. going to beat this boss no matter what. And it doesn't feel like that's the thing about Hollow Knight is like I love that game. But when you lose to a boss and you revive at the bench and you have to go all the way back to where you got your ass kicked. Like, <laughs> I mean, in that game, you can also just be like, you know what? I'm going to explore. Forget that boss for a bit. Yeah. But upgrade I, the nail or something. Yeah. Overall, though, I, I tend to prefer for boss fights having the option at least to retry right away. Right. So all that to say, like, I wouldn't say this game is easy, but it feels so modern and so elegantly designed that this would actually be even though i'm very early on if it continues doing what it's doing this to me feels like a great entry point into either a soul style game or metroidvania gate punk game totally it feels like it's taking inspiration from so many things like it's clearly hearkening back to sands of time but it also feels so ps2y in a good way to me like it reminds yeah. me a lot of like the early god of wars but without the edgelord part of it especially with like the persian mythology and everything yeah i think i think in that that's what i mean like it, it feels a lot like the sands of time in that way like the yeah. sands of time before you got the sequels i think warrior within i forget what the third one was called but though i think that's two thrones that you might be conflating two crowns with that game. Oh, maybe. Yeah, that might. I be might it. be mistaken, but but sa- sand the sands of time to warrior within jump going from one to the other. That was where they really imbued Prince of Persia as a franchise with like that real edge lord shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> they had like metal as the soundtrack to Warrior Within and its sequel, whereas the sands of time is a little bit more of like a. It honestly just feels kind of like a a slightly more mature version of like a Jack and Daxter style game in a way, but with a stronger focus on combat and also, you know, you're trying to not fall into death traps and stuff. I haven't actually, did I mention this already? I've been playing that game again a little bit um, in preparation for a GameCube episode in the summer. And also just, it felt like the right time to play that game alongside this one. It's still very good. It's still a very good video game. I cannot wait. I know of it, but I haven't played it myself. Yeah. It's been in my backlog for forever, but yeah, two thrones was the third game. So that might, that might be amazing. That's definitely what it was. The, the other thing I want to, I want to jump in on that you just brought up is the Persian mythology stuff I think is really great. Cause I think like historically 
these games, I as far as I have seen, and I haven't played the 2008 one, but I'm kind of dying to now, weirdly. These games do not really make use of the the like locale of Persia very well. They end up just like in some ways feeling a little like cultural tourism adjacent. I mean, going back to the first one, the Prince of Persia is just like a blonde white guy, which is like yeah. not the vibe. Um, also, the movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal, deeply confusing. Um, yeah. This game is like not only really going in on actual Persian mythology, like it's pulled from the Shahnameh, which is like this big Iranian epic that was uh, written by a poet like way back when, like for those of you who don't know, my partner is Persian. So like I interact with a lot of Persian people in my life now and everybody has a copy of the Shahnameh and everybody knows what's in the Shahnameh. And now I am also recognizing all the Shahnameh stuff happening in this game, which is amazing. And on top of that, they also, and I highly recommend doing this because it has like really as much as I love the voice acting in this game. The English voice acting is amazing. They have a Farsi audio track. Like you can switch. They got a bunch of voice actors who speak Farsi and that audio track is also amazing. So I think all of that in conjunction with one another is like, this is a game that is really taking its location and like the name of the game, Prince of Persia, seriously, finally, in a way that I think like it is really like honoring that folklore, which is something that I've never really seen well represented anywhere, I think, Absolutely. in, in yeah. this style of game. Um, so if you're interested in like learning anything about the Shahnameh or that kind of stuff, like this is definitely a loose take on that stuff. Like Mount Kof is in there and, and uh, a lot of the characters who pop up throughout this game uh, are also in there. But like it's still cool to see it at all, I think. Uh, and, the, and the Farsi audio track like really just kind of amps that up in a big way for me. Yeah, I feel like overall when someone says mythology in games specifically, but even in all media, I feel like we see a lot of Greek and sometimes Norse. Yeah, you're like, you know? damn, zero to hero. Am I right or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but i agree it's it's great to see this mythology and, and this culture represented more yeah it rocks more directly yeah i'm trying to think what else i even want to talk about with this game i, I feel like there's a lot to say but i also don't want to spoil too much of it it's just really great it's just really i great. do wonder too it feels kind of ironic and i don't i don't know anything about the development of this game or how ubisoft like saw it in their financial forecast yeah but you saying that they're gearing up for a sands of time remake i wonder this game coming out so early in the year circling back to our q1 conversation like i wonder if they saw this as like we'll release this to kind of get people hyped for the sands of time remake and ironically i mean we'll see how that game does i'm sure people will be excited about it but like it feels that this is maybe the beginning of a whole new direction for the flagship series i feel like this is going to totally eclipse that like as i I just i mean first of all obviously and this is the thing we've talked about a lot but obviously emulation has become like way more accessible to a lot more people dolphin as a gamecube emulator works on like anything at this point uh like you could run it off a plant or something i don't know um (laughs) but like you could go play the sands of time right now you know and you could have that experience if you wanted to whereas this taking taking what is essentially to ubisoft at least like late in you know speaking strictly from a business perspective taking what is for all intents and purposes just late in ip it's just been sitting there since 2008 plus, I don't know, the 2010 Jake Gyllenhaal movie and saying like, what's a more kind of low cost way that we can revive this, but also imbue it with kind of some new life. The gatepunk approach, I think, is a like really kind of savvy way of doing that. But I think, as you're saying, unfortunately, is going to totally, totally 
eat the sun the the spotlight of of the sands of time remake when that eventually comes out and as as you said i imagine there are people who will be excited about that i will probably play it when it comes out i'll be curious yeah. about it especially considering i will have recently played the original sands of time again um but i'm like zero percent interested in that remake and i'm very interested in seeing where they can take this absolutely yeah i think um it being this genre feels similar to breath of the wild where there's there was this approach of looking back at the original game and thinking like what is the modern genre equivalent yes. of what the first game was attempting to go for right even though like again there's the cynical view of like oh well this is just like a stew of what's popular it does fit that original game way more accurately than maybe the like god of of worry ones in the early 2000s right a little bit less so yeah. um, even though those games are great in their own way but yeah I'm, I'm very curious to see the future of this franchise yeah yeah me too uh and i'm excited to play more of this i this is definitely a game i'm gonna finish uh i am like yeah. well on my way to finishing it already i i all i want to do is play it which is to be honest, like not an experience I've had uh, super recently where it's like every time I'm not playing the game, I want to be playing the video game, uh, which is definitely a nice feeling. Almost in some ways has me a little bit concerned about if Silk Song is coming out this year. Like there's a little piece <laughs> of me that's like, is it possible that I walk away from 2024 saying Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown is the gate punk game that really spoke to me? And not Silk Song. And not Silk Song. We'll see what, you know, cross the bridge when it comes. Yeah. I think uh, the one thing, uh, again, people have pointed out that sometimes what we say on the show comes true. The one exception to that is I think every time we bring up Silk Song, it gets delayed. It's delayed in, enough in the year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I see all the time people listening to the backlog in the Discord being like, oof, they just like in 2020 said like, I wonder if Silk Song will come out yeah. this year. <laughs> it's so funny too, because again, it's only been a little under five years. It's been as long as the show has existed. Okay, so it, it's been a while, but it's also like if the average game's development time, or at least the AAA game's development time is five years. Yeah. Like it's not it's not a Kingdom Hearts 3 like decade long thing, but right. I think maybe the lack of info is what has made it feel longer and yeah. the teases because like every year there's like does this mean it's coming out and the answer is always like a maybe yeah that, <laughs> you know? that edge magazine issue <laughs> yeah like really just haunts me because that cool was cover, like but yeah that was like the thing you release seconds before it shadow drops uh, I, there's gotta wild. be a story behind that right like i think it, that's gonna be one of the most interesting stories ever told in video game development. i'm almost more excited for the documentary about what on earth is happening with this game than the game itself. Hey, Danny O'Dwyer, if you're listening, <laughs> are you yeah. secretly working with Team Cherry on this? I would love to know. And if you're not, I would still love to know. I, I think mean, to, to be clear, I want them to take the time they need. It's a yes, very of small of team. Yes, yes. But it, it's just now become like a, a true crime mystery at this point. Yeah, I think I think the you know, if, if you're to um, Sherlock Holmes it, the, the most obvious solution is the simplest one. I think like Hollow Knight is much, much bigger and much more revered than I think the team that made that game probably ever anticipated and making a sequel to that has got to be so, so horrifying as a prospect. Like it's got to be the most mortifying experience to be like, yeah, everyone said your first game is like maybe one of the best games ever made. And now you want to follow it up with something bigger. You know, I, I feel an iota of that stress, even with our show, like when we put right. out an episode that people like, I'm like, oh shit, like, am I an imposter the minute I release or we release like one that is not quite as good or, or whatever. So yeah. like, I think any creative endeavor has that vulnerability. So I have a ton of empathy for what, for what they're doing. And also we talk all the time about games 
games that are like sequels to the hit and they're all kind of weird and warped because of it sometimes in a beautiful way yeah sometimes in a strange way that's interesting more than it is fun yeah so i'm curious so in 10 years we're gonna be like silk song is better than hollow knight <laughs> but we yeah. might not feel that this year I yeah. might I might say that Prince of Persia, the Lost Crown is. The <laughs> but all that to say, going back to Prince of Persia, like I'm trying not to even think about Goaty 24 quite yet, because <laughs> that would be a little unhinged. Uh, it's sort of like when my mom wishes me a Merry Christmas in March. It's like we have some time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it is cool to play a game and be like, you know what? I This is going to be in the conversation. Yeah. You know, like once this year ends, this game from fucking mid January is going to yes. be revered in the same way that whatever's coming at the end of the year we'll yeah see. this is this is uh this is our hi-fi rush this yeah, year totally. you know yes. in a lot of yeah. ways but I, I also am hopeful and i think i said this about hi-fi rush also so uh, excuse me for repeating myself one calendar year later but i do think that maybe this is a sign of what the vibe is going to be for 2024 because i think with the with the absence of like huge heavy hitter releases that we know of outside of the ones that are all slated for q1 the rest of the year is like kind of weird question mark no man's land and if it's going to be filled with games like prince of persia the lost crown where we like don't hear about them until they're like pretty much ready to go and then they come out and are incredible great sign me the fuck up for that i also think it, it you know i i hesitate to to compliment ubisoft's business strategy ever <laughs> But I think, I mean, comparing it to Hi-Fi Rush, it's like Bethesda and Ubisoft are kind of essentially shadow dropping these smaller, more focused games. And that is what I want from AAA. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. that's like ideally the state I would want to see that like quadrant of games to be in. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, as with every Ubisoft uh, focused section of our podcast, I just want to end by saying that their CEO has got to step down. Dude's a yeah. nightmare. Dude's an absolute Absolutely. fucking nightmare. Get the hell out of here and let people make more Prince of Persia. But to everyone who worked on the game, great work. Yeah, uh, amazing job. Cool. Why don't we take a quick break and uh, move on to our next game, which is somehow related more than we thought. Hey, it's definitely related. They're almost the same, as, as we've discussed. <laughs> See you later. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to what we're calling tentatively Tidings from the Aether, uh, which is, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, our, our, our personal ad reads. So uh, you can go to shop.intothecast.online, click on the little advertising button, and you can you can buy uh, an ad here for like a birthday shout out or a message to a friend or something like that. Uh, and this is the first time we've ever done it. I just also want to shout out the amazing music that is behind us right now. Uh, thanks to our friend Will, who has uh, made so much of the music for the show. Thank you so much to Will. Thank you, Will. Uh, for providing this incredible track, uh, which got turned around almost immediately, which was miraculous. Yeah. But this is our first ever message that we've that we've done on the show. Um, we do want feedback on this, by the way. It's also worth mentioning. You know, this is all stuff that can evolve. We've opted out of talking to, you know, the big sponsors like Squarespace when possible um, and decided to sell ads ourselves, uh, splitting them up into personal and commercial ads. Um, commercial ads will probably start at a later date, but for now, here's our very first personal ad, our very first tiding from the Aether. Uh, this one is from Lillian, and Lillian says, Hey Jacob, Lillian just wants you to know that you're one of the coolest people she's ever met, despite being the only person she still knows using oo unironically. <laughs> Okay, I I have a couple of friends who are who are holding down the uwu fort, so they're not alone. <laughs> they should all meet up. It's still they should all they should go to uwu con. 
and, and start their own thing. It still happens. Thank you for everything you do to keep the friendship alive, even though the two of you left the bayou for different parts of the country. She can't wait to see you in April to hang out, argue about lies of pee, and kick your ass as the third Hokage in Naruto Ninja Storm. Love you. I don't even know if I said that correctly because I don't know anything about Naruto. Weird blind spot for me in the anime world. Anyway, P.S. She didn't know how to break it to you, but the couch didn't make it through the last move. Farewell to a legend. With the salute emoji. I just want, I don't know how to say salute emoji out loud without saying the salute emoji, but that is <laughs> the best emoji in my in my eyes. Can I just say too, not to immediately turn this into a contest, but great first tiding. That it was, was a like great tiding. Heartfelt, complimentary, and also a, a few zingers in there, you know? And made me want to check out Naruto. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm really pumped for that new DBZ fighting game, the sort of Budokai-esque. Uh, yeah. I keep forgetting the subtitle of it. But. Tenkaichi, right? Uh, well, that was... That oh, was that was the old one. Yeah, there's a new one. Yeah, it has a new subtitle, but it's essentially Budokai Tenkaichi. Yeah. But enough Dragon Ball Z. We have another tiding here. Uh, this one's from Garrett, uh, and he wants to wish a very happy birthday to Dave in New Hampshire. Apologies, this is a little bit late for your birthday. And also, Garrett would like me to try to convince you to get a PS5. Um, he understands you love your Switch, but he believes a PS5 could improve your life. Now, this is a little bit ironic asking me to do this because I've been pretty critical of the PS5 in our history of doing this show. We just had a whole bit about how Prince of Persia crashed your PS5 yeah. over and over and over again. <laughs> so I'm going to find a middle ground. I'm going to say five ways Ooh. in which the PS5 will improve your life. Uh, one, uh, PS5 comes with Astro's Playroom which is no joke one of the best mario games that exists yes and you get that for free and it's essentially a tech demo for the <laughs> ps5 remote which is another way it will improve your life the, the ps5 controller is a marvel of technology i don't think every game utilizes the full potential of it but if you play astro's playroom you'll know what i mean the the feedback of the shoulder buttons and just the weird feelings it can it can provide uh, emotionally <laughs> yeah, emotionally uh, i mean there's there's a point in Astro's Playroom where you pull out an umbrella and it starts raining and you can feel the trickle of rain on the controller. This is part of uh, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart, which is the third way the PS5 will improve your life. Remarkable game. It's a great video. A game. character cracks their knuckles and you feel that in the controller, which was like, they didn't need to do that. Yeah. Somebody busts into your house and cracks your own knuckles for you. <laughs> so uh, Astro's Playroom, Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. The controller feedback. Yeah. Two more ways you ask the PS5 could improve your life. Uh, your entire Sony backlog, every game you've purchased, you log in, you got them all. On the PS4. On the on the from the PS4. You know what? That doesn't count anymore because it's not including all the history. Uh, so, but I will I will say it's a low bar. But even I'm gonna include it as the fourth one because I don't know how many more I have. Uh, having all of your PS4 games just easily transferred to a new device is like the lowest hanging fruit of what these giant companies should do for us in terms of like preserving their backlog so if you did get a ps4 you'll have it all i think there's like five games that are not ps5 compatible but yeah i don't even remember what they are they're not big ones it's just the last Wait. of us <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't think of any other Sony exclusives. And a fifth way this will improve your life is the login sound is good. It's actually a pretty... Sony is good about that. But the turn-on sound for the console, it's not PS2 level. It's definitely not PS1 level, but it's good. It's a nice... It's unironically my favorite thing 
about Sony consoles. Yeah, they're good at they're good at the signing on experience. You will immediately get a pie in the face with a Mr. Beast ad the minute you've logged on to your PS5 because that's true. They took away themes and you just get you just get ads. ads. But otherwise, all those five reasons, I think that will improve your life. Uh, so give it give it a chance. Listen to your friend. I think you'll be happy to have a PS5 and be able to play together. At least go over to their house and play PS5 together. That could be fun too. What's your what's your favorite boot sound of all the of all the PlayStation consoles? Probably PS1. That's that's my gut feeling. I, I think there was a little bit of added drama where like you have that initial like like that kind of very yeah. uh, almost like a digitized 2001. Mm-hmm. And then there was the follow-up with the dun, dun. and if that happened you knew the game worked because mm. I had a few games where it was just stuck on that initial loading screen. The follow-up sound was essentially a confirmation that the game was going to work. And yeah. having utility with the sound is also great. So the PS1, I think, overall no contest. The very close second is PS2. Wow. I would I would say that there is a contest. My favorite is definitely the PS3. That like big symphonic yeah, opening is, is so cool and really kicked off for me at least this like weird this is not a thing i've ever talked about on the podcast but i have like an absolutely weird obsession with boot sounds for like windows like the history of windows boot sounds just like console starting sounds like i just i love that um and wanted to at for at a portion of my life actually was like how do i become the person who creates audio branding for companies that was like a thing i wanted to do at one point as a job so anyway hey thank you to both of you for sending in those uh tidings from the aether you can go to as i mentioned shop that into the castle online you can get your own and we'll read them out on the show there's a bunch of rules and stipulations there so just keep those in mind but for the most part i think this was a success let us know how you felt about it dear listener let us know if i convinced you to get a ps5 and uh Please wish Dave a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Dave. Bye-bye. Brendan. Steven. I am very excited for this next game. This has been on our backlog for a while, and uh, up until recently, there's really been no way for us to play it. Uh, But thankfully, recently there was a uh, fan translation patch for Tokimeki Memorial uh, for the Super Famicom version. Yes. Worth noting, this game came out on a number of different consoles when it was released uh, in the early 90s. It seems like the PlayStation and Sega Saturn versions are kind of considered like the definitive version. The creme de la creme. The Super Famicom version is like kind of a demake in some ways. I looked up like to see what exactly the differences were and I think it's nothing that if you were to play this game for the first time like us would get in the way of the experience, but I would imagine when eventually and there there also worth noting there is apparently a Sega Saturn fan translation in the works. Oh nice. I haven't seen any updates since like this time last year, but I would guess given the rising popularity of this game after the Tim Rogers video, I would guess that we'll see more stuff like this happen. Yes. So the differences in the Super Famicom version are there's no voice acting, which I would imagine that's like the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, Because I think a lot of this game, as we'll talk about more in a bit, is gauging 
how the character you're talking to is feeling and reacting to what you're saying Mm -hmm. and having a a voice on top of their facial expression and dialogue is just another way of getting that information also just imbues them with more character other things too there's just like some artwork that is not present in the game like some events aren't there and overall everything is like a little bit more compressed so it's kind of like if Chrono Trigger was never localized in the US and we only got a fan translation of the PS1 port. Mm. All that to say, if that's the only way you can play Chrono Trigger, then you should still it's still do one it. of the best games and, of all time. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I feel now having finished Tokimeki Memorial twice. Yes. Uh, believe it or not. So a bit of background on this game, if you don't know. First of all, I would just highly recommend watching the action button video essay on this game. It is simultaneously a video essay on the game itself. Definitely like a deconstruction and exploration of the time it came out and sort of the very different like marketing and and reception of the game in Japan and in the US. And it feels like a good companion piece to his Doom review, which I think also explores like the toxic masculinity of the 90s, you know, marketing with games like Doom and how everything had to be like guts and blood. And, you know, right. any game that wasn't about killing was somehow perverted or weird. Yes. It's a really, really insightful video, really fun to watch. And also, the it is six game. hours long. It's worth mentioning. It's six, <laughs> it hours, long. six hours long. So, just a heads up on that. If you're listening to this show, frankly, I don't think you care. Yeah, you have uh, the stamina <laughs> yeah. to watch um, that video. I would recommend watching that video. It's one really of good. the reasons that video is especially long, though, is that it's also a Let's Play. Yes. So, if you're interested in this game at all, and I genuinely think having watched that video before playing helps me understand the mechanics way more than even reading the instructions would have. Yeah, yeah, because the, the video is, com- I think it's, I mean, I just rewatched it uh, in preparation for this episode of the show, but uh, it's comprised of five parts and parts three and four are two different Let's Plays of the game. Uh, so you're, you really do get like the full gamut of what I, th- I think you will need to start playing this game. It is worth mentioning he's playing, I think, the PS1 version, yeah. uh, which is called Forever With You, which is, uh, it It does include also some extra mechanics. That's like the other big change that I think is worth shouting out. Um, there, are, When you're playing the game, there's like a menu where you get to decide what you're going to do that week. And uh, there are a couple extra options on the PS1 version. I think the biggest one and the one that I lament and you and I have talked about a lot over the course of the week is just the ability to click on a calendar that just shows you what's coming up. It is the most helpful thing in the world for a game about... <laughs> actually planning About dates with planning. people <laughs> yeah. and it's so weird that it's not in the super it's weird that that wasn't in like the baseline spec of the video game it's weird that that was only in the ps1 and and sega saturn versions it's like the skyward sword switch port only giving you fast travel if you bought the amiibo yeah <laughs> Yes. Uh, So deeply weird. But anyway, yes, that that video will give you a really holistic idea of what I I think of how you're going to play the game when you want to, why you would want to play the game in the first place, uh, which I think you you and I are about to just gush about. So we'll also probably serve as people who are doing that. But also, as you mentioned, the larger the larger understanding of like where this game fits, I think, in the larger landscape of like video games, visual novels, dating sims, and uh, just just the ideas I think that were at play in the early 90s. Absolutely. So just I think the elevator pitch for this game in 2024 especially is that this is really the blueprint for all dating sims. It's one of those games where once you play it, you see its influence 
everywhere. Yeah. And I think going back to our conversation about genre, I really think this should be considered one of the pillars of RPGs as well. Like mm-hmm. I think it is explicitly a dating sim. It is a game about being an awkward boy in high school trying to win the affection <laughs> of the way more interesting girls in your grade yes uh who are all like completely out of your league in terms of characterization (laughs) but it's also just like such a rich game like i think it it is it perhaps sounds shallow and i think our even our current understanding of dating sims if you were just to look up dating sim on steam you know you would get titanfall 2 of course but you would also (laughs) you would see a few on the top you would see like persona you would see you know these giant rpgs that have dating sim elements but then you have just a lot of weird like pornographic shovelware that i think i don't want to say like discredits the genre but i think if you were to just search like what are dating sims that are out right now i think it would it would probably alienate most people from even considering playing one yeah a lot of the dating sims that exist on steam of which there are thousands exist specifically with the sole purpose of like objectification of women that's like that's that's the mo top to bottom whether the people who make them want to admit that or not that's the vibe and it's not to say and it's worth mentioning and this is another thing that obviously uh tim rogers video goes very deep into that's not to say tokyo memorial does not have those elements in it of course you know this is a game uh that is directed or at least written by as you mentioned the guy that made castle Pennsylvania Symphony of the Night. <laughs> but, you know, there is a lot of objectification of women in here. It's worth mentioning that he also wrote it alongside his wife at the time. Um, so it's not it's not like there were no women working on the video game, but it does contain elements of things that I think creates a wish fulfillment for boys in high school the same way a game like doom would create a wish fulfillment for boys in high school exactly but to get to your point about it being an rpg it's got a lot of stats it has more stats than a lot of actual rpgs i've played yes but i i think going back to just talking about the genre of dating sims i think you and i and especially speaking on my own behalf like some of my favorite games of all time are really dating sims in disguise. Mm. Mass Effect is a space dating sim. Yeah. Three Houses, not so subtly. I actually just shared with you and I posted in Discord as well. There is a, a promotional image for Three Houses that is like kind of a, not bird's eye view, but it's like a shot from above looking down on all the students of Garrig Mach. And they're all like waving and smiling and posing. It's every character in the game. It is almost one to one of a promotional shot of Tokimeki Memorial, all the all the characters in that game striking almost similar poses. And it's unbelievable how similar these two images are. But I think, you know, and not a coincidence. I mean, Fire Emblem Three Houses is the Fire Emblem that's leaning hardest into the sort of relationship management part of the game. But I think the reason you and I love that game so much is because those dating some elements in Three Houses were rooted in this idea of like actually really understanding these characters and yeah. helping them through something. That's also something that I love about Persona is like all the S-links and confidants in that game. Yes, there are some that are, you know, romantically flavored and that's an option to pursue that path of certain characters yeah uh but most of them are really just like gamifying relationships and and having the end goal not necessarily always be romance but be like you the player saw something in this character and because you invested in them you got to see a side of them the main story wouldn't have otherwise given you yes and i think your investment in the story is going to be like you know 
way more intense because it feels like you actually got to know this person. Right. And Second Mechie Memorial does that surprisingly well. Yeah. I think for a game that begins with this like weird boy who you <laughs> tragically can't control too much of what he says being like, all right, high school, time to meet babes. Yeah. And you're truly pathetic friend who has like a illegal notebook of Even, every girl's <laughs> yes the game open the game opens with a monologue from the protagonist who you do get to name enter their birthday and blood type but as you just mentioned like you don't you crucially don't have control over everything he's doing and saying but the game opens with a monologue from him being like i tried really hard to get into this high school specifically because i have a crush on my next door neighbor who also goes there which by itself is like bizarre but then you meet your first friend who even your protagonist is like you are a gross weirdo (laughs) because he just has this notebook where he takes notes on every girl in class uh that are deeply uncomfortable there's something about the friend the male friend specifically in all teen media between 1994 and 2006 where it's like what happened why is that (laughs) the archetype um but anyway yoshio is his name and he has he has a notebook of every girl's like astrological sign creepy personal information about them that i won't even bring up uh (laughs) and also like their likes and dislikes and their phone number yes so you do have to engage with yoshio a lot throughout the game uh you'll as you continue playing will meet girls in your grade and to get their number you have to call yoshio first which feels just ask her for a number directly why resort to this creepy notebook (laughs) but the way the game works more mechanically is like you said there are a lot of stats maybe second only rune factory there are that many stats there's school subjects so there's like humanities there's science and logic uh, there's your physical fitness. You can join one of many clubs in the school, which will also boost certain stats. And a lot of the club's characters will have joined. So you could also like get to know them a little better if you're in the same club. Mm-hmm. There's also an HP stat and a stress stat. So you do have to kind of monitor like, okay, if I'm just running for weeks at a time to boost my fitness, I will definitely need to budget some time to rest because If you keep doing actions, specifically like physical actions, if you have no HP, you can injure yourself and then, you know, you won't you'll either have like a penalty to some things later or you won't be able to take certain actions. So that that feels very familiar. And that really is like still how a lot of dating sims work. Like one of my favorite games from 2022, I was a teenage exocolonist is very much that, you know, there's a character for every stat in the game and the more you do that thing the more you get to know that character similar thing in tokimeki so if you read a lot you're gonna meet the nerdy like bookworm girl who hangs out in the library mio um mio exactly so i shouldn't i should have led with her name not the nerdy girl in the library but (laughs) and for some of the stats there are even multiple characters which i think that plants the seed of replayability because the whole game takes like maybe five hours like you can knock it out in a couple of nights really without even trying yeah and it's divided into three years of high school so really the loop of the game is like what are you doing this week you can call and make dates with the people you know and they also all have their individual like feelings about you so one of the one of the many reasons you have to call yoshio tragically is to ask him like what do the girls think of me and he's like outlined like 
you know, there will be a, a smiley face next to each girl and it will either be like angry or neutral or happy. Or if they're like in love with you, it'll be like blushing with their mm-hmm. eyes closed. There are also bombs in this game, uh, which now we're linking it to the death traps we talked about earlier. <laughs> so I think around the second year, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure what triggers them to happen, but I haven't had it happen in the first year yet, at least. But mm eventually when you're like in your room choosing you know what you want to do that week it's also worth noting the ui of this game is unparalleled like it's amazing most of the game is menu navigation and they have successfully gamified that in and i think ways that still haven't been matched maybe other than persona which yeah is pulling a lot from this game it could completely um, alter your sense of graphic design forever yeah. just, just by <laughs> playing this game once all the way through so eventually you'll be alerted like yoshio told me that rumors are spreading about me at school and if you call yoshio to ask what the girls think of you some of them will have bombs next to their name uh, and what that means is that like if you don't make plans with that character in like a few weeks, they will spread rumors about you and that will be a penalty to like everyone's approval of you. Everyone in the school will hate you a little bit more. So I have two thoughts about this. One, I think this is where the game leans a little bit into being perhaps accidentally misogynistic. Yeah. Like I think the idea that like, if you're not actively making plans with everyone in school, they're going to gossip about you. Yes. It's a little uh, misguided, I think. Well, I, th- I think one of the things that just to, to, to jump in there, I think one of the things is like it's not even that you're making plans with everybody in school you need to be actively dating everyone simultaneously or else everyone will spread rumors about you whereas if you were to do that in real life uh you would have a john tucker must die scenario (laughs) they made a whole movie about why that's bad but tokyo memorial is like that's actually the optimal way to play the video game it's one of the like more questionable elements of this game which there are many right but as a mechanic it actually works really well because what it does is it really turns the third year of the game into civilization, you know, because I think without the bombs and I'm sure they could have maybe approach that differently in terms of like what they meant or whatever but having some type of penalty for not reaching out to all the characters or for not like as the player like engaging with all the characters what it does is it prevents you from just like well if there was nothing at stake i could just keep making plans with the girl that i like and want to end up with at the end of the game yeah and then cool like what was the point of doing any of this right you know like it could feel a little bit weightless but having that is like you have to suddenly choose between like oh my god do i spend this whole month just like putting out the bombs and not spending any time with the girl that I actually like. Right. Or do I just say, screw it, I'm going to maybe put out two bombs and then spend the rest of the time with that one girl. So it does actually create a lot of strategy and a lot of long-term thinking. And also the game really starts to up the difficulty in the second, third year where like to put out those bombs, you're going to have to be making lots of plans over the course of the weeks and the game will kind of call your bluff where if you're not really thinking about it if you make a date with yumi just to put out a bomb and then it will be like where am i meeting her again if you didn't remember that you could end up fucked accidentally standing her up it's weirdly thrilling like that was part of the game i I knew about it from the tim rogers video and i felt weird about it just like you know conceptually yeah conceptually but like it does work in the context of the game. And I think that's what I'm most amazed by with Tokyo Mechanic Memorial is that in Persona, for example, the the character confidants and S-Links and the dating some elements of the game 
are almost there as a reward. Like you can't really mess up hanging out with Ryuji or hanging out right. with Makoto. Like I think you can say the wrong thing or you can actively not pursue romance when the game is like, I got to choose my next words carefully. But like the game is already about the dungeon crawling and the combat. So when you have the life some elements, all everything you do in Persona is a boon. It's just a matter of how you're budgeting your time because you can't do it all. So yeah. it's more about like, what are you making time for? Though it is interesting. And I wonder if they'll keep this in the remake. In Persona 3, that wasn't the case. If you ignored oh. people for a long time, their S-Links, everyone's a tarot card. Yeah. Their tarot card would become reverted and be upside down. Whoa. And you couldn't continue developing that S-Link unless you like spent a day talking to them and, and like reconnecting and, and apologizing for not hanging out with them. Wow. Okay. So, and that's if Good you needed any further evidence that Persona is pulling from Tokimeki, there it is. So like Persona, the life, some elements are there kind of as a reward. You know, it's like when you're tired from battles, I just want to hang out with my friends that's going to make me do the battles better. And Tokimeki, though, like hanging out with your friends is the battles. It's all singular. It's just like plan and execution. And I think seeing how you can gamify just menus and just getting to know people. And I think the other element of this game that I think is especially impressive for the time and for I think it's a piece of the game that I wasn't expecting to be blown away by is the characters do feel real despite them all being very uh, archetypal. And I think like you're really not going to get to know, especially in one or two playthroughs, you're not going to get to know any characters that intimately like you would in Persona. But the end goal, like the scene that you get at the end of the game uh, basically like the way it ends is depending on your stats and your approval ratings, you will get a letter from the girl that you like have the highest approval with and she'll be waiting for you under the tree of legend where she confesses her love for you and you live happily ever after. But you, <laughs> at least I have often get like a crushingly real, the graduate esque ending. Yes. And usually those scenes of the declaration of love are that, but they're also like a reveal of who this character really is. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a little bit like they tend to go longer than most scenes do in the game. And I think if you pursue any character directly, you know, there's one character named uh, Mira Kagami who is like very vain and has like a villainous Team Rocket laugh and her own fan club. Yes. And she's also like the wild card where like she just won't show up to your date sometimes. She's often late. She'll yeah. show up early and yell at you for being late. But then she you learn also it's worth mentioning she only shows up if your looks are high enough. You need, yeah, to, you exactly. need to be specifically focusing on how good you look if yes. you want her to show up at all. <laughs> you have to ignore your homework to just comb your hair for her to show up. Yes. But you learn, at least in my first playthrough, like you eventually learn that she has a million siblings and is basically taking care of all of them. Mm -hmm. And like all that like uh, arrogance is kind of a front to her being this like very selfless person yeah. who just doesn't have more of herself to give away. Right. Which is like, it's simple, but it's so effective. And I think it's, it's kind of like the positive version of a bait and switch. And that's something that we loved about three houses too, where like every character in that game is a fire emblem archetype, but there's like a reason they are that way rather yeah. than just like, Oh, this is the nervous character. This is the sleepy character. We learn why Bernadetta is nervous and we learn why Linhart would prefer to live in a dream world to his own reality. Yeah. And so Gimeki is doing that. Like, 
decades before other dating sims thought to. And it's just to put it simply, it's way more fun than I was expecting. You know, yeah. I think like the civilization comparison yeah. is not just in the bomb system, but is in the like one more turn yes. aspect yes. of the game. Like you, you, if once you start playing this game, if you get like halfway into the first year, I would say the first time you like, or the first time you run into a girl in the hallway and you meet her and like, you're like, okay, I'm going to schedule a date from that point on. You are absolutely fucked i think in terms of your own <laughs> personal time management because you will only be spending time playing tokimaki memorial for the for the foreseeable future the game will get its hooks in you and is so ridiculously difficult to put down once that happens uh i, I think as evidenced by the fact that like i started playing this game i, I was uh on the bus uh, to visit our friends at the show, Pablo and Callie. And I was on the bus for like two hours. There was like a squall that hit. So like the bus took longer than it was supposed to. Uh, and I played Tokimaki Memorial the entire way. It was it was the first time I booted the game up. I'd never played it before. I booted it up. I played it literally the entire way. And when I showed up, it, it was so cold and snowy that we like really couldn't go outside or do anything. And I was like, let me just plug my Odin directly into your TV. We're all going to play Tokimaki Memorial together. And that is what we did the whole weekend. We just played Tokimaki Memorial the whole weekend together. And and it was like thrilling. First of all, just playing it by yourself. Amazing. Great. Playing it with other people where you're all sitting there looking at the dialogue options of the girl you're trying to date being like, oh, my God, which of these three options is the right one and which one is the wrong one? You know, and obviously one of them is like more neutral or whatever, but just like making sure you don't fuck up. But having other people to bounce that off of and realizing that like everyone has a different interpretation of what this girl is actually into. Because as you mentioned, like every every person that you're talking to has a, a kind of deeper layer to them. The ways in which they uh, present themselves on the surface are very much at odds with who they consider themselves to be or who they really are deep down. And I think and this is maybe not true, but the game is so deep that like you start to question what's in the game and what's not at a certain point oh yeah i've started to ask myself if these people are actually getting wiser over the years of high school and if they start to learn more about themselves as time goes on so like while they might present themselves as one person in the first year that you meet them certain dialogue options will work then that won't work two years from then because they've changed as people or is that literally you as the player understanding more about them the fact that the game even makes you ask questions like that is wild yeah um but sitting there in a room with two other people and we're all like really 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 scrutinizing the wording of all three options is like just thrilling so also it's worth mentioning uh, my partner percy and i played this game on stream on our twitch uh the other night as well similarly like i think percy has sat down you know it it was like, oh, I'm going to go stream Tokimaki Memorial for a while. And I was just kind of at the last second, like, do you want to come with me? Like, are you interested? Because I think she was just going to play Slay the Spire or something and like watch TV. I was like, do you, you want to come with me? Like, we could do this together. She was like, yeah, absolutely. So she sat down and, and you could see her over the course of that stream starting off being like, I don't like, what are all these buttons? What does all this mean? And then like 30 minutes in, it's like, oh my God, what if this girl doesn't like us? Yeah. You know, like it really clicked. The minute she listened to the music and yes. got rejected by Ayako, yes. she was in. She was yes. hooked. <laughs> yeah. It's so it's so hard to remove yourself from the shackles of this game as soon as they're clamped on. It's like it's it really just gets you. It's also like I've I've played it twice and the variety of events I've seen, even with the same characters, like yeah. I took Yuina Himo the science girl. Yo, who, we, okay, we have to talk about Yuina. Yes. Yeah, Yuina <laughs> might be my favorite. The first time I met her in my first one, which didn't happen the second time, I met her like in media res and she was doing some experiment on me. And then my character woke up and was like, was that a dream? And then there was a note from her like, let me know if you have any side effects. <laughs> like, so like... <laughs> 
That's amazing. And like, and what's great too is like, she's the really, only one who it's worth mentioning is like basically a cartoon character, by the way. Yeah. Like definitely there, you know, she's got her own personality and there's like stuff going on there. But like, for the most part, she is a mad scientist and she wants to take over the world. And that's her whole energy. <laughs> yeah. She also like, whenever you call someone to schedule a date, like the game will keep you on your toes. Cause they won't just say yes or no right away. Yeah. Um, and the way she says yes, at least in the fan translation is like, Oh shoot. I've not nothing better to do that day. I'm free. Like, yeah. So she says yes by being like, ah, oh, crud. I'm not. I'm not. I can't I'm say no to this. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I took her to the junk shop. Yes. And like, there was a whole like secret event that played out uh, where like there was a close up of her face with like a mad scientist grin, buying all these weird like screws and wires. Yeah. And like in that case, I think it's like the junk shop feels like the bad option because uh, there are different places you can take uh, all these characters on the different dates. And that's also part of your decision making process is like, would this character like going here? Like right. one of the girls, I believe her name's Yuko. She's like all about trends and what's cool and what's, you know, mm. in the zeitgeist. And if you take her to the amusement park, she just hates it. <laughs> She's like, are you a baby? Like, what is this? Why are we like on roller coasters and stuff? <laughs> that's funny. But the junk shop, I think for most other characters would be like i'm actively trying to make this date go like poorly to not get too much approval with this character right but in you and his case it's like that actually is the like, it's like the number one place you could take her it's yeah. like it's like there or the zoo so she can look at caged animals because she's yeah. again evil she's incredible <laughs> uh and that's what i mean it's her like, music also is ridiculously everyone's good. got a theme song yeah like all the characters have such such a they're at least intriguing and in like what their kind of archetype is like what yeah. their like singular adjective is and seeing events like that play out it it makes you want to replay and even like halfway through the year you're gonna have regrets and you're gonna have like things you wish you did differently like my second time playing i met a character i hadn't met in the first run that i'm like oh my god i would much rather pursue this character than the one i'm already pursuing which feels shitty yeah but it's like I also think, and this is maybe me reading a bit too much into it, but like the first time I played this game and I would wager this happens to almost everyone, especially if you're playing this in 2024 without an instruction manual, I got the bad ending. Yes. Uh, I was so concerned with, with putting out negative rumors about me that I didn't really pursue anyone and I ended up by myself. <laughs> and the the ending is your character in a in like a Evangelion Shinji with his head in his palms silhouette and a song plays as the credits roll and then the character looks at you, the player, with tears in his eyes. And I'm like, I gotta play this again. Yes. <laughs> I can't have this be. But I, I do think you're probably going, I think like you mentioned earlier, Earlier, a lot of dating sims are about like oh like i i just want to go after this character and we're going to end up together because they're the one i chose but in this game like it really is up to the girls like you don't have any final say other than the choices you've made over the last three years like that final right. decision of who shows up under the tree is completely out of your hands which i think one is more realistic and two is it creates this really tense and and high risk high reward aspect to the yes. ending Yes. Um, but I think like most like the game is like, you know, a, a big part of the Tim Rogers video is like him playing this game now is like this game gives me this sort of thought exercise of like, what would I do differently if I were in high school again? You know, right. And the game, I think, immediately plants regrets in your first playthrough and in your future playthroughs. And you can never really have a perfect playthrough of this game. Right. Like there's always going to be someone you ignored 
or a rumor you couldn't put out or something you wish you maybe spent more time doing. And I think that is kind of a insightful commentary on high school in general, where like, I think it's a it's a fantasy to think if you could do it all again, they would all go perfectly. Right. Because so much of it is out of your control, even in this game that is promising you that fantasy. Yeah. And that to me, I think like getting that bad ending and then playing it again. Um, the second ending I got was interesting. So I was more of a, I always pursue the arts. I always do theater. I always do uh, art in this game. Yeah. But I was more of a jock the second time. I did a lot of fitness. Oh, okay. I eventually joined the baseball club because nice. I really liked the baseball character, uh, Saki. Mm. But I was also kind of pursuing Nozomi, the swimming captain. I really liked both of those characters. And eventually I'm like, I don't really know. Like, I kind of just want to, put the ball in their court so to speak yeah so i did like a better version of what i did the first time where i was like i wasn't just putting out fires but i was sort of just like really honestly engaging everyone in the game but like kind of platonically mm-hmm. and the ending i got was with the weird stalker who you bump into <laughs> constantly uh who i i kind of was like i need because she kept calling me yeah. way more than she did the first time I kept bumping into her and then she was under the tree and she was like, I'm sorry I've been so shy, but like all those times I bumped into you were on purpose. And then the character's like, oh, you think? Yeah, like, surprise, surprise. I kind of got the hint. But her whole thing is like, she is like a romantic. She believes in love at first sight and she didn't have the confidence to bring it up. And I, I found that to be a really touching ending because this whole game is about like trying to make yourself the person you think other people want you to be. And all this time, there was the secret admirer that like just needed the courage to present herself. Yes, this is this is, I think, where the game, I think, plants its biggest bomb of all, which is <laughs> Shiori Fujisaki, just the existence yeah. of Shiori Fujisaki, which if you, if you go look at the art for this game, look at the box art, just even Google Tokimeki Memorial, pretty much all of the imagery you're going to see is with this girl who has this long red hair. She is like, quote unquote, you know, the box art girl of Tokimeki Memorial. And the whole deal with her is that you need to play the game pretty much perfectly to be able to end up with Shiori Fujisaki. She is the one who at the beginning of the game, your character is like, I bent over backwards to get good grades so I can get into this school so I could go to school and be in the same class as my uh, as my crush who lives next door to me. You know, there's the whole like girl next door angle. But you need to play the game perfectly to do that. And you need to probably like consult a bunch of guides. Tim Rogers in his video, you know, I think he said it was his 14th playthrough. Without, <laughs> he didn't he didn't use guides at all, but he was like, it was his 14th playthrough where he finally understood how to play the game in a way that would make him end the game, quote unquote, with the best ending with Shiori Fujisaki. But I think for me, playing the game and running into her over and over again, has created this weird, almost like perverse idea of like min-maxing high school to the point where you kind of lose yourself along the way. Because as you just said, and I, I think this is really is a really good point, is for a lot of these people that you can end up dating in Tokimeki Memorial, you do need to become a different person to be with them. Like your character when he starts out is like a bumbling idiot. All the stats are low. He is like... <laughs> just like he's a nothing dude and you have to sculpt him into something but he does as we've mentioned already he does have his own agency he does have moments where he speaks up and makes dialogue choices that you would definitely not approve of he is a guy all to himself i was comparing it uh to to percy when we when we were playing the game on stream i was comparing it a lot to like the the emotions inside the character and inside out like that's all we are really like we are the we are the subconscious emotional decision making at some times but some Sometimes you lose control of 
you know, uh, the subconscious and the control over your emotions. And you just insult people to their faces all the time. But all of that having been said, I think when the game's premise is like, what if you could go do high school again? Ending up with Shiori Fujisaki, despite being considered the good, perfect ending, according to like the people who designed the game and the way it's been marketed and all of that stuff, I see as this really horrible, twisted fate of like, you actually completely missed the point of being able to do this again. If that's the ending that you got. There's a really great part of the Tim Rogers video where he compares, he compared it to like the ending of A Midsummer Night's Dream where it's like, this is not like a chosen fate for. Yeah. Yeah. He he says something really interesting in it, which is uh, something to the effect of like, you're doing Shiori a disservice also by like pretending to be in love with her in that way, which I think is really smart. But I, I, I think like just in general, like if you came up to me and you were like, I have the magic ability that's going to allow you to go do high school again. I, I don't think I would spend literally every waking second min maxing every second of time I had in high school again. Like that is not, that is not how I would choose to live my life. And that's how nobody, should choose to live their lives yeah. you know i consider the miharu is the name of of the stalker or the mystery girl mm-hmm. i consider that ending canon for me because i just feel like that feels that's a like great a, it sounds like a yeah. great ending yeah that sounds amazing i feel like it works for you know it's it's got a nice like arc to it because she's yeah. also one of the i don't know if it's always the case but she's one of the first characters you meet before you have yes. like anyone it is number. always the case yeah i so i i should mention i've finished the game twice but i've played through most of two other runs as well. I have one I have one run on my Odin that I'm still working on, uh, which is the one that we were streaming. And then I have one run on my Miu Mini Plus that I'm also working on, which is deeply silly. Um, but I've, I've finished the game all the way through twice. Once I got the same ending you got, which was like the you fucked up and you're alone ending. Uh, I would guess over 50% of people will get that first. Yes. Like even if you've, even if you prepped, like you're going to get that ending first because the bombs are brutal and yeah. they're hard to put out. They are. Yeah. The, the game that this feels the most like to me in a lot of ways is Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> in, Another game with, with a lot of dating some elements. You that's know? true. I mean, yes. Yeah. I, I, I just mean in the sense that like I needed to play the game for like 10 hours before I understood fully how I was going to play the game the next time. Yeah. Um, so playing through that entire run, like once once things started going so horribly on that first run, the the instinct obviously is to just start from the beginning, like just wipe the save, start from the beginning. They give you two save files. So it's like, OK, well, that's why the second one is there. So you could just go back. But I was like, I got to I have to commit to this because I want to see the end. I also knew that the game was short. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to I'm going to see the rest of it. Got to the bad ending. I was like, OK, I know what I'm going to do next time. And I started the game again. And in that run is when I ended up uh, dating Nozomi, who was the swimming girl, which is, again, not too dissimilar from what high school was like for me in general as somebody <laughs> who was on the swim team. But the thing, the thing about Nozomi that I think is interesting is like she's so easygoing, like dating yeah. Nozomi is is like in a lot of ways the easy mode of the game, which I didn't realize because I, I was just like, well, I didn't focus on fitness at all in the last run. I might as well focus on fitness on this run, see how that goes. And it ended up going great because uh, Nozomi is the best. She's just like so cool. The thing about her, you know, just just to give you a little bit more insight into her character, and I don't want to spoil it, but like you get this pretty quickly, I think, is like she is a, a lot like Mira. Nozomi is a person who has almost no time to spend. She is the number one best high school female swimmer in Japan. And because of that, she is always running. She says we did, we did the math. She runs 31 miles a day. Uh, <laughs> which is unbelievable. Uh, she runs 31 miles a day and also, you know, has to be in swim practice and all that kind of stuff. And her thing is that she feels like because she's spending so much time doing this, she doesn't know who she actually is. 
which I think is for anyone who has a hobby that they like throw themselves into 100% or has like a thing that they feel obligated to do, which in high school is very often the case, you know, because you, you have all these external pressures from like parents and teachers and, and coaches and all these kind of things. You end up so overwhelmed by the things that you're told you need to do that you don't know who you are and who you would be separate from those things. And that is Nozomi's whole vibe is like, yeah. I'm told constantly that I'm going to be the best swimmer in the world, but I don't know if I even want to be swimming. It's also great storytelling too. like just a small detail, but whenever you take your exams, they post the results of every character. Yes. Certain characters tend to do really well. So like Yuina, Yuina, the mad scientist is usually in the top five. Yeah. Shiori, of course, because she's perfect at everything, yeah. is usually number one. And Nozomi is almost always dead last, which I think reinforces she's the pretty, idea that yeah, she's pretty close to the bottom. Yeah, there's like 300 something students in the school and she's usually like in the 300s. Yeah, yeah, she's usually low, at least compared to the other characters. Like, yeah, because and that's the other thing, too. You probably won't see. I think there are 12 characters. Yeah. Uh, so. You probably won't see everyone in one run. Right. Uh, like usually like in my first run, I didn't get two of there are three sports girls mm -hmm. and there was only one showed up. Yeah. And then my second playthrough was different. So like usually there will be like a variation of two to three characters, depending on what stats you prioritize. And there's also a little bit of a metagame where like it's probably better long term. And this feels like this feels like the beginning of morphing yourself into someone that doesn't exist for the sake of min-maxing, but it's probably better to not meet too many people right away because mm -hmm. then you have more rumors to put out later y on. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it, you could play yeah. through the whole first year of the game and not meet anybody. If you're like... Yeah. The sleeping. <laughs> this was, I think, the third or fourth playthrough I had where I spent a lot of time being like, okay, what I want to do now is just kind of like evenly distribute the stat gain across all of the stats. But what that really means is that you don't cross the threshold where you're meeting any of the people who rely on those stats for a really long time if you're spending your time trying to make sure that like, okay, I got my art up now. I got my like studying up now. I got my science up now. I got my fitness up and now I'm resting and now I got my looks up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you, if you go down that like very formulaic path, you're just not going to meet anybody. Whereas if you're like, I'm going to be the strongest motherfucker in school, you're going to meet all the sports <laughs> girls like day two, you know? like Yeah, that was the second playthrough because I, I think yeah. my fitness was at 300 by the end of the year. Yeah. And uh, yeah, all of them were present. Yes. So. Uh, the, the highest the stat can go, I think, is in the 500s, which is wild. Oh, wow. Because I don't yeah. I don't even know how you would do that. But uh, I'd be fascinated to know what that game would look like. You would probably have to really neglect because I feel like everything. My else, fitness yeah. is really high, but I had like above 150 and everything else. Yeah. And I tried to keep everything at least above 100. I don't really know like what the because that's another thing too. determining who shows up under the tree is like you need to end the game with numbers and certain stats to in addition to their approval for them to like right. show up <laughs> uh in the case of shiori the reason she's so difficult is like you need like perfect stats across the board yeah it's uh, ridiculous yeah yeah it's it's not it's that's a game i don't even want to play no yeah. i i mean especially i mean it was thrilling watching tim rogers make like a psychological thriller out of that experience yeah. <laughs> um but i i i actually think at least the way we're reading the game, it feels like you shouldn't. Yeah. You know, it feels like you enter high school as this character with a certain perception of how things should go and you leave with another. And I think that switch is actually like a more interesting arc. Yeah, it feels weirdly to me. And I promise this is not me comparing the game to Dark Souls directly, but like... <laughs> 
it, others have so it, it feels yeah. to me like in a dark souls game you a thing you and i have talked about a lot in souls likes is the idea of fighting a boss and when you're done fighting that boss after like bashing your head against it you have the like launch out of your chair holy shit yes i'm the best in the world moment but then there are the other bosses where you beat them after like bashing your head against it and you just don't even acknowledge it and you just keep going you have that moment where you're like absolutely fucking not like just what's next uh and i feel like that's how i would feel completing this game in a post fujisaki run uh i know i know that's not how tim rogers feels about it which i, I think you know a great moment in that video also you know 14 runs in doing it with no guides and stuff like that's a, that's a huge mountain to have climbed uh but for me i think going through and and getting that ending myself i would be like i don't think this was worth it <laughs> it is weird though because she does kind of haunt the player when she you does. don't pursue her at all i mean even when like if you have a perfect week, like if you say I'm I'm studying this week and it's worth noting, like when you choose to do something for a week, there's a little animation that plays out for every day of the week. Yeah. And I don't know what determines the success, but there's a hidden like dice roll in the background that determines like how well it went that day. Yeah. And if the week goes perfectly, there's a little scene with Shiori at the end of the week where she's like, hey, like great job. <laughs> like, yeah. Like uh, and, and it's a different line for each stat. So like. If you just did a great job combing your hair all week, she'll be like, you're looking pretty cool. Lately. You look great today. Yeah. Uh, or, or she'll be like, you've got an intelligent look about you if you just studied. On the other side, which I love this, and I truly love Ray. Uh, Ray is the rich, popular guy in school. That's oh, yeah. kind of your rival. If you have a terrible week where you fail every time, you get a scene with him where he goes, this is why you're doomed to be in the lower class. Like, you should give up now. <laughs> Uh, and it's it's kind of a, a treat for failing the week, but I did I did piece together. So like another event in this game is on New Year's Day, you can go to a shrine yes. either by yourself or with one of the girls. That's like one of the rare times where if you invite anybody, they come with you. But if they really like you, they'll just show up and be like, "Do you want to go together to the shrine?" Oh, at least that's been my experience. I have not had that experience. Interesting. But regardless, when you go to the shrine, you can wish for good health, good grades or uh romance romance yeah um and you actually get that no matter what i've been honestly wishing for good health most runs because i'm always like yeah. in desperate need of hp and i don't want to waste the week sleeping so good health will just give you like an hp boost as far as i can tell some of the mechanics are still to this day fairly cryptic good romance will give you a boost and affinity with that character uh and then good grades i imagine would boost like your I don't know, probably boost your exam performance or something. Yeah. But then in addition to that, you also draw like what your luck will be that year. And I think that determines your success rate because I got what they called the worst luck oh, uh, in my second man. run of the game. And I got that scene with Ray quite a bit. There were a lot of weeks where just <laughs> nothing went right. And I was told this is why you're stuck in the lower class. Joke's on him. The stalker loves me. So we're fine. <laughs> oh, that was that run. Yeah, it was that run. Great. Yeah. I, I, so I was like, do I restart? And I'm like, I want to power through. Sometimes you get the worst. There's something luck. about this game that makes me like, yeah. I, I think especially playing on something like the Odin, like it feels like I would be so reliant on save states. And this game just makes me want to like push through anyway, because there's so much here. And I think just the fact that we've talked about this game for like almost an hour already, I, I think I think really belies the fact that like the depths of this game feel unknown to me still four runs into it. You know, like I, I just think there's so much potential here in terms of 
every single girl, but also in terms of like every single character where you can hang out with them. We haven't even mentioned the fact that like there's a magazine that updates every month that shows you like all the events happening at all the different date locations and all the new places that have opened up and like what movie is playing in the movie theater and all this stuff. There's so much that could happen that is just left completely up to chance that you will have a different run of the game every single time you play. And I think that's like absolutely miraculous. And I think it's short enough that like committing to even what feels like a doomed playthrough is usually worth it. Yeah. And you're still gonna have a fun time because you're just gonna be laughing your ass off as every single bomb goes off one after (laughs) the other and everyone in school hates you. And you start like, you know, it, when, when you go to the front of the school after a day of school and it's like, Oh, look, there's Mio. Mio will just just, runs away. She'll just turn and look at you and kind of scowl and then there won't even be dialogue she just disappears in my first playthrough yeah there was a scene where yuko had gritted teeth and ran away from me on site and i was like look we haven't hung out in a while i don't think i did anything that bad <laughs> that's the other thing too though is like some of the stats are interpreted weirdly where like looks is also just like if you've groomed that week so like even yeah. if your looks are not that low if you haven't done them in a while people will comment on the way you're dressed yeah and the way you appear but it's i mean it, it's a miraculous game I, I think it's really it's really incredible how like sometimes when you play what's considered the blueprint of a genre you expect certain shortcomings right and i think what's so telling here is like this feels mechanically almost more advanced than a lot of the games that have pulled from it since yeah you know and i think being like i think a lot of the examples we've made like persona i think being the clearest one i mean even just the way things are narrated in persona when you're hanging out with your friends or or on a date or going to the movies feels right out of tokimeki again like that game it's not the focus of it it's it's just a, a piece of it having having these relationships be the primary focus and having the variety it does and the depth it does. I mean, I unlocked a weird scene where there was a Final Fantasy battle against like a panda with a big bamboo stick. Yeah, um, on the on trip to China. Trip. Yeah, yeah. I, I also had that. Stuff like that is just so cool. And, and unlocking the unique events, like it always, like it's rare enough that you're always excited when it happens. Yeah. I will just say like for anyone interested in playing this, if you do get the... Uh, the fan translation like again we opened by saying that like this version of the game is a little bit less than the definitive ps1 and sega saturn versions i trust that to be the case like i think there's also a tim rogers quote about the shortcomings of this version but if it's the only way you can play it i wouldn't let that stop you i mean i, I hope we do get a translation of the saturn version i would definitely play it but this has been such a fun and positive experience. I would want more people to have the experience that you and I have had. Yes. Um, so if you're curious at all, I would highly recommend checking it out and downloading the fan translation. Yeah, it's it's really, really fantastic. What One other fan translation that I know is in the works I'm really excited about, and especially based on that action button review, is Tokimeki Memorial 2, which apparently yeah. is like the first game, but better in almost every single way, which I think is exhilarating considering yeah. how much I'm already enjoying the first one. And to know totally. that this team went on to make a sequel that like is bigger and better is fascinating and I'm, ex- I'm excited about that and not to, not to make this the the like action button thing but uh the other the other fan translation that i downloaded and uh threw on the odin recently was boku no natsuyasumi 2 which 
I'm excited to finally start playing as yeah. well. I don't know if that's going to be a next week thing, but uh, it's, a, it's a game I always hover over in the Odin. So what endings did you get? I know you also got the the bad ending. Yes. Where you're uh, yeah, it was the bad ending in Nozomi. Okay, cool. Um, which was great. And honestly, like the, the most chill run of the game I've had so far. <laughs> I, I learned that the Miharu, the mystery stalker ending, is like no one really knows how to trigger it. Like you basically just have to like be in okay standing with everyone but not be like fully in love with anybody either yeah yeah uh which is basically what happened the first time so i don't know what i did that differently the second time but it was it was cool especially getting such a mysterious and unknowable ending the second time it felt very special yeah yeah hey talking about memorial is is a really it's a really wonderful game uh i would, I would recommend checking it out it's it's the kind of thing hey if you have like a one of those retro handhelds uh throw it on there especially one that's like pocketable and can play super nintendo stuff uh you're gonna have a really good time i will say one one thing that's worth bringing up uh if you are planning on emulating this game the emulator that most devices default to is called b b snes BSNES. This has a hard time running in BSNES. It runs really well in what's called SNES 9X, SNES 9X. Um, so if you can go in and like change your default emulator, you'll want you'll want to do that. So if you if, if you can't get it to run, that's usually the problem. I love the arcade theme song. Just want to say that real quick. The music yeah, the, is also the really music's good. ridiculously good. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculously good. The arcade and the junk shop songs are my yeah the arcade is amazing did you uh, just out of curiosity considering you also did a a a yuina focused run did you get to a point where she was gambling no i didn't i I, i've never like focused singularly on her but i usually something about her spreading rumors feels more dangerous i know it's probably not mechanically but i'm like i i want to have the mad scientist on my good side Uh, at all times so so yuina was was the run that i did with our friends pavel and callie and uh it's just like between the two, of course, the two of them really like Yuina the most, yeah. uh, which is very funny. But we got like every single dialogue option as wrong as possible because <laughs> we were overthinking it every single Like the answer is that like whatever is the most evil mad scientist villain answer is the one that she's going to like. And we would always be like, I wonder if there's something else going on. And the answer is always no. But uh, if you go on the school trip to China, as we talked about, and you hang out with her you will find her one day in the casino of the hotel that you're staying in. And she has created a device that is allowing her to manipulate the roulette table. <laughs> so she's <laughs> just like siphoning money off of all the people who are like dumb enough to sit there and try and gamble against her. And it rocks. That, so that funny. rules. That's also one, one note about the dialogue before we sign off is like, if you go to the aquarium, which I weirdly went to a lot for some reason, it felt like a neutral enough place. You can't yeah. get that mad in an aquarium, you yeah. know? The dialogue options are usually the same. So like how dates play out is like you'll arrive at a place, you'll go in, uh, the girl you're with will like make a comment of some kind and then you have three dialogue options to choose from. I think in a weaker script, it would be like one is actively rude, one is neutral, one is like a compliment. And here they're just three different thoughts. And what might be a really bad option for one girl is the correct option for another. So in the aquarium, one of the lines of dialogue is like, dolphins have really scary teeth, huh? <laughs> Which is usually like what you don't want to say. And for you, Ina, her eyes like get big and she's like, yeah, you got an eye for detail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like she's, of course, the girl you bring up dolphin teeth with. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing time. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, uh, would recommend. I'm very excited to hear about the sequel getting potentially localized as well. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows when that's going to come out? But, uh, I, these look, I am so grateful and thankful to all these people who just like give their free time up to translate games like this. Um, 
the, the stuff always takes a really long time though so so just a heads up like if you're like oh i'm gonna wait until the second one is translated like don't do that just play the first one first though. yeah the second one will just be a nice surprise one day when it comes out if it were any other company i would like maybe secretly hope that like a port or a yeah. remake of some kind would come out and this is no chance with konami like i just yeah. feel like you know it, we're lucky we're getting games again from konami never mind <laughs> ports of of their backlog but yeah uh, I'm glad you would, people... you would think, though, that given their penchant for like, how can we siphon as much money as we possibly can off of the least amount of work possible, doing a translation of Tokimeki Memorial would be like a pretty easy slam dunk for them. I would love to see it. I could be wrong. Probably by saying this, it will come out next week. But yeah. I'm very glad there's a dedicated <laughs> fan base yes. bringing this game to the U.S. Absolutely. Cool. Well, why don't we sign off then? Uh, Let's sign off. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, the best way to help it grow is to share it with a friend. IntoTheCast.online is our website. Uh, there, there are links to the Discord, links to our merch store, links to our Patreon. Our upcoming bonus this month that's available for everyone is going to be Twilight Princess. Very excited to finally record that. We had to reschedule that a few times. And for patrons, uh, we have, uh, we'll let you know the exact date once more of it is, is edited, but uh, we've been doing that D&D campaign for our patrons that will kind of be a companion piece to the Baldur's Gate 3 episode, which will be the next bonus. So really big episodes with a lot of editing, especially the D&D one. Uh, but we're very excited to share all that with you. Um, and then after that, finally, for the Uncharted heads waiting close to a year, we'll have our big uh, Uncharted episode as well, which I'm also very excited to do. Did you watch the the reveal of the Indiana Jones video game? I haven't. Has that fully uh, brought you back to Uncharted or the future of a game like that? Oh my God, Steven, it was so Does it look good? Yeah, it looks so good. Yeah, it's, it's, by, the, um, it's by the Wolfenstein team. Oh, Machine Games. Yeah. Cool. It looks so fucking... I mean, and Todd Howard. It's Todd Howard directing the Wolfenstein team. Uh, which is like exhilarating. Yeah, I think uh, that <laughs> that's look, made for you. Here's, yeah, that's exactly the point. I, I, here's the thing. There are maybe two pieces of intellectual property where all rationale gets thrown out the window for me. And I am just like, I'm totally bought in and I will love it no matter what it is. One of them, as I've talked about on the show very recently, is Dragon Quest. Like I, it just as it turns out, I just love everything Dragon Quest related and I will forever. The other one is Indiana Jones. I'm going to love that game. I'm there's going to be zero percent objectivity in that conversation when that game comes out. I, even I think if it's, it's important. I think it's important, especially for video game podcast hosts to occasionally have that. Like, yes. <laughs> this is beyond critique. I just love this. Yes. Like I have that with call of duty, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Still got it. I had that with Final Fantasy seven to be clear, but also a little bit of call of duty. One day Not I'll all. talk about my experience playing call of duty one professionally. <laughs> Wait, did that happen? Yes. Were you like sponsored by Subway or something? <laughs> no, I was just, I was in, I'll talk about it on another episode. I sprained both of my wrists in seventh grade playing Call of Duty 1 multiplayer. <laughs> Little tease for another episode. Well, I'm glad you've come a long way. Your wrists are better, I hope. And, uh, yeah. but you're slightly less good. I mean, hey, you needed to rest more. You needed to stop spending every week doing your cod stat and maybe yep. go to the aquarium with a stalker that's true <laughs> <laughs> my name is brendan bigley you can find me on the internet at brendan bigley i'm Stephen hilger uh you can find me in the aquarium dolphin teeth are scary huh <laughs> you have an eye for detail baby got an eye for detail bye-bye see ya